Hey Mosaic family, we're so glad you're here to worship with us today. If you're new to Mosaic, we are especially glad that you're here with us. As a church, Mosaic exists to make disciples who believe the gospel, abide in Christ, and obey the word of God. If you'd like more information about our vision, if you'd like to get connected to the life of our church through community groups, or if you'd like to find an opportunity to serve, you can text the word Mosaic to 97000 and we'll follow up with you this week. My only announcement for you today is about our upcoming Fall Fest on Sunday, October 30th at 5 p.m. It's going to be a time of fun, fellowship, and fall stuff out in the backyard. We'll have pumpkin bowling, inflatable axe throwing, giant Jenga, and cornhole. For food, we'll be having a chili cook-off, so make sure you bring your best recipe for your shot at bragging rights. We'll also have s'mores because it wouldn't be fall without a fire. We're looking forward to this time of togetherness, so plan to be there and feel free to invite your friends. And now, as we get ready to worship through singing, as always, we just want to remind you that children are always welcome with us in service. However, we do have kids ministry for kids birth through fifth grade, where they will have a time of worship and gospel-centered Bible teaching that is age appropriate. We also have a nursing mother's room just outside the lobby should little ones get hungry or restless. Again, we're glad you're here with us. Let's worship Jesus. Good morning. Again, glad to be with you this morning. My name is Tad. I'm the lead teaching pastor uh, here at Mosaic Church. And so on behalf of Mosaic, we're glad you're here uh, to worship Jesus this morning with us. And uh, as Amy said in the welcome video, uh, we do have our Fall Fest coming up on October 30th. That is a Sunday night. Uh, We did bump it back to 5 p.m. instead of 6 just because uh, we wanted to get more time together. If we started at 6, it'll be over once it starts. So uh, anyway, hope you'll join us for that. We have a lot of fun things planned, fall-ish games, uh, pumpkin bowling being one. I've never done that before, but it seems like fun. Uh, yeah, inflatable axe throwing, things like that. Just really fun stuff, just goofy stuff to do, to do together and just to get to know one another better and, and have a good time. We do value that as a church, and so we hope you'll join us for that. Also, chili cook-off, really important. So please bring chili uh, your best recipe, as Amy said, so you can get bragging rights here uh, in this local body of believers. So uh, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure if that's biblical. I don't know. I should look that up before I say that. But anyway, all right. Moving on. Uh, I know David just gave our offering talk, but I do want to chat with you for just a minute about uh, every preacher's least favorite topic, which is finances. Um, we do see scripturally from time to time that the Apostle Paul does have to address financial giving uh, of a church that he's writing to. And so please consider uh, this kind of like that. This is a tough year for the economy, as David said, and as I'm sure many of you know, as you're feeling. Uh, so the reality is we are not the only church in this position, which is behind budget. Uh, and to be specific, we're behind budget by uh, about $12,000, which is approximately 6% of our budget. That may not sound like much, but that's Uh, about how much we budget for something like our utilities or uh, a couple of our part-time salaries or so, you know, it it could certainly be worse, uh, but it's not nothing. $12,000 is a relatively significant amount for a church of our size. But uh, rather than harp on that, I've spoken with our other elders and we think this would be a good idea for us to do collectively as a church, uh, for lack of a better term, to do a challenge together. We're going to call it the uh, 2% challenge And here's why we're going to call it that. Uh, The median income for a family in this area is about $57,000 or $4,700 a month. Some of us bring in more than that. Some of us bring in less. But that's a pretty safe uh, average. 2% of that monthly number would be $95 or about $3 a day. Most of us spend $3 a day on something, don't we? Um, And so here's where I'm going with this. Mosaic has just over 40 giving units this year. That's either individuals or family units who give together. So if 
20 families in the range I've just presented determined to increase their giving by just 2% for the next three months, October, November, December, we could just about cut our $12,000 deficit in half. That would be good, wouldn't it? If you love Mosaic, you're, you would think that would be good. I, I would hope if this, this is a church that you love. Our finance team met last week. Uh, we came up with a few other ways that we can creatively pull back our spending uh, in these last three months of 2022 and essentially shave off the other half of the deficit uh, and hopefully uh, come out in the black at the end of the year, which would just mean that we don't have to dip into our savings to pay our bills. Uh, dipping into savings is not a fun place to be, as some of us probably have had to do that personally at some point. You know that's not a great thing to have to do, and so it's not a great thing to have to do as a church either. That said, uh, maybe those of you who uh, really love Mosaic are thinking, well, okay, that's, that's great that we can avoid a deficit, but 2%, that, that doesn't sound like much of a challenge. Would we really be doing enough to increase, doing enough to increase by 2%? And that would be a good question, and so let me just answer that preemptively by telling you something kind of crazy. Um, if we have 20 families, which we do have at least 20 families here, by the way, if we have 20 families increase their giving for the rest of 2022 um, by 2%, that might just you know, cut half of our deficit. But get this, if those 20 families determined to keep giving that extra 2% through the year of 2023. Uh, I'm not a mathematician, so check my math on this. But $95 times 20 families times 12 months, a 2% increase like this would increase our yearly budget by nearly $23,000. That's, that's going to radically change our conversation about finances as a church. Not, not only would that account for the inflation that we're struggling with as a church, but we could substantially increase our giving towards mission, which is really what we want to do. We could support another missionary in Mumbai, which, by the way, Osram has already asked us to do that. Uh, unfortunately, I can't give him a yes right now. I would like to give him a yes, uh, but that's something we could do. We could, honestly, we could double our local outreach budget we could do more with the city of Crestview, Northwood Elementary, Crestview Pregnancy Center, PATH, and Crestview Manor. We could increase the amount that we give through the Emerald Coast Network uh, to support gospel-centered church planting in the panhandle. Uh, and we could give more to our state convention and in turn give more to ministries like uh, Florida Baptist Disaster Relief, which helps with things like uh, disasters that happen with hurricanes. We could give more uh, to the Florida Baptist Children's Home that um, that helps thousands of foster children across the state of Florida every single year. We could do all of that if half the families here commit to increase their giving by just 2%. 2%. The thing I love about this challenge is that it doesn't matter what you're currently giving right now. If you commit to this, you will increase your generosity and you'll really uh, help support the mission of your local church. So for instance, if you're giving... If you're being honest and you're giving 0% right now, I'm sure there are some of us who are giving 0%. And if you are and you increase by 2%, that would be really helpful. It would be a step at uh, increasing your personal generosity, but it would also help your local church. Or maybe you're already giving 8%. You could go ahead and increase that to 10% and officially make it a tie. So no, no matter what you're giving currently, if you take the challenge to increase your generosity by 2%, it would really make an impact, okay? We're a relatively small church. I say this all the time. If you don't know, our entire budget is met by the people that you see in this room on Sunday morning. There's not some outside, I don't know if maybe some people think this sometimes, but like there's not some outside denominational organization that's pumping funds into our budget every year. It's just the faces you see in this room. These are the people who are meeting and giving to our budget every single year. And so truly, your generosity translates into our generosity as a church. So uh, if you love Mosaic and you consider us your church, my question for you is, will you take this 2% challenge? Not out of guilt 
or coercion, but just because you love your church. Will you join us in this challenge? All of our elders are committed uh, to this challenge because we love Mosaic and we desire uh, to see it continue to not just squeak by, but to flourish for the sake of the gospel and God's kingdom advancing through us. We want to keep seeing things like 12 baptisms a year. Guys, that's like 10% of our body. Do you realize that? We want to keep seeing things like that. And our financial generosity as individuals and as a corporate body, it supports the ministries here. It helps those kinds of things keep happening by the grace of God. Finances is an important part of that. All right, so uh, we'll probably do an anonymous survey coming up for how many people will join us for this challenge. It would be great to know uh, if we actually get 20 families to, to do it. So we'll probably put that on social media and you can look for that. But more importantly than doing the survey, will you join us in the challenge? We would like to meet our budget, but we would also like to do more for the gospel and for the kingdom of God. Man, that's really uncomfortable. You guys are so quiet. So, all right. It's like, thanks for making me feel super awkward, all right? Okay, well, I did it like three times, so like, I'm pretty sure that's accurate, okay? So, all right, but, but check me, check me, so, all right. Uh, how about after the service? That'd be, that'd, be, that'd be great, so we'll talk about it afterwards. Okay, this brother up here who isn't even a part of Mosaic wants to challenge you for more than 2%, so that's awesome. Thank you for saying that. All right, well, we are uh, nearing the end of Romans 8, if you can believe that. And uh, I'm honestly a little sad about it today. You know how you feel when you, you go on a vacation and it's like the second to last day and um, you know you still have fun things to do but, and it's not over yet, but that thought comes in your mind. You're like, it feels like we just got here and I want to stay twice as long, right? That's how I feel today about Romans 8. Romans 8 truly is the best chapter of the Bible in mine and many others' opinion uh, and it makes you not want to leave. But the good news is, if you have a Bible, you can go back anytime you want, okay? So let's not dwell on that. Let's get into the good stuff that Romans 8 has for us today. I want to start off by mentioning uh, that I got more comments last week about how good Romans 8.28 is than I get in a month of preaching any other text, okay? Uh, so it's a seriously comforting verse. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That's just one of those verses that gets you through life, doesn't it? Yeah. That's a verse that you go to in the hardest times to remind you that because of Jesus, no matter what happens in our lives, everything's actually going to be okay for us, right? Everything's going to work out okay for us. That said, this, this is wild. The Apostle Paul, he could have stopped at verse 28, and uh, we would have been happy, right? We would have been happy with verse 28, but he doesn't stop at 28. He, he goes on to actually strengthen the promise of verse 28. Like it, it was strong already, but Paul beefs it up with verses 29 and 30. And the way he does it is by not leaving any doubt at all in our minds about God's sovereign determination to work all things together for our good. So uh, let's read it and we'll pray, and then we'll talk about it. Let's start back at verse 28. Here's what Paul says. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called and those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Father, your word is so good. Thank you for all of the amazing promises that you have given us to get us through this life. Because sometimes, God, we confess it is really hard. The effects of sin our own sin, the sin of others, and just sin in general that is the cause of the curse on creation. Lord, it weighs us down. It discourages us, and it 
At times it hurts us, but God, your word reminds us that you not only know this reality better than we do, but you are the only one that could do something about it, and you have. In sending your son Jesus, you have forever solved the problem of our sin, and you are bringing it day by day to its end. And in turn, you are bringing us greater and greater hope and joy in Christ. And it's your word, Father, that assures us of all of this. So we thank you for it, and we pray that as we submit ourselves to what it has to say, that it would not render void in our lives, but it would accomplish all that you have intended it to by your spirit, God, that the discouraged would be lifted up, that people in sin would be convicted to repent and turn back to you, that hurting people would be comforted, and that lost and lonely people would realize the joy of being found and adopted into your family, God. Though I've prepared to talk about this text today, Lord, I I can't actually do any of those things myself. Only you can by your spirit. So would you do them in and among us for your glory and our joy. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, today's text, I'll just tell you at the start, is for some a controversial one. Okay? You're like, man, you already talked about something controversial. No, it's okay. Controversial because of one word in particular that if you know, then you already know what it is. It's the word predestined. So let me tell you how I'm going to address the controversy. I'm not. I'm not. (laughs) Because Paul intends for these verses to be not controversial, but comforting. Okay? Don't get me wrong, I'm a theology guy. I have a Bible college degree. I'm in the process of getting my master's degree in seminary, both of which involve some pretty extensive theological training. So I do think that a commitment to sound doctrine is imperative to the life of a healthy church. But I do not see it as my endeavor in preaching to, uh, to argue with which historic stance I take on the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's free will, because that's not the primary point of this text. The primary point of this text is for you and for me to be encouraged and strengthened in our hope of salvation, okay? That said, the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, said this about the biblical doctrine of predestination. He said, I am persuaded that the doctrine of predestination is one of the softest pillows upon which the Christian may lay his head, and one of the strongest staffs upon which he may lean in his pilgrimage along this rough road. I agree wholeheartedly with this assessment. And this was the way that every biblical writer who speaks on predestination speaks of it, including Jesus himself. And so here's what I want to do today. Really simple. Using our text, I want to define the doctrine for us. And then I want to break that doctrine down into three parts. And then I want to end by explaining what I think this doctrine does in us practically as believers by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Okay, here we go. Here's my best definition of predestination. The doctrine of predestination is the beautiful mystery of how God lovingly chose his people. Pause there. Before we get to the three parts of this definition, I want to make a comment about God's choosing us. Verse 29 says, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. That word, foreknew, is an important one because it was the very first step of our salvific process way back in eternity past. Most commentators say This word foreknew essentially means chose. But the reason that Paul uses foreknew instead of chose is because there's a deeper Old Testament meaning to the word no. Okay? God did choose us, but I also chose a pair of socks to wear this morning, uh, and that's not how God chose us. Okay? (laughs) In Genesis chapter 4, When Adam and Eve begin to have children, it says, Adam 
knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, their first son. God also uses this term know regarding his relationship with Israel in the Old Testament over and over about their, his relationship with them compared with the relationship with other nations. Obviously, God knows everything and everyone, but he would say that in a special way, he knew his people, right? And so this term knew, it has the, the connotation of close relational intimacy. God didn't just eeny, meeny, miny, mo choose us. He lovingly chose each and every one of us to belong to him, to be one of his covenant people. This is amazing, isn't it? Okay, hold on. Let's get past the giving thing. That's amazing, isn't it? Okay, all right. We're good. We're good. It's okay. All right. It's amazing. Do you see why this strengthens Romans 8, 28? Paul is saying with verses 29 and 30, that the reason that we can know that God will definitely work everything together for our good is because while we may, like just now, be tuning in to his redemptive plan, he actually formed this plan before we even existed. And he has been sovereignly working this plan out since the beginning of history. Okay? Nothing is going to stop God from accomplishing his plan. And while we're on the subject, I may as well mention this. Us being saved by Jesus was not an afterthought or an amendment to God's plan. Okay? Us being saved by Jesus was not an afterthought to the plan. Satan did not throw a wrench into God's plan and force God to have to send his son Jesus as plan B. Okay? Jesus was always plan A. And there is no plan B. Because God doesn't need one. Okay? God's knowledge about Satan and sin was already baked in to his plan. God is not the author of sin. And he's not the puppet master of Satan. But he knew what Satan would do. And he knew that sin would be a part of the story before the story began. Okay. We see this super clearly in Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul gives some clarity to all of this. Here's what it says. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us, in him. So there's the choosing, okay? And in him means in Christ. All right. So when God chose us, he he did it with his gospel plan already in mind, knowing that we would need Jesus. And then get this next piece, okay? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, that is, in Jesus. So in this text, we see, in much more specific terms, the first piece of my definition of predestination. The doctrine of predestination is the beautiful mystery of how God lovingly chose his people before the foundation of the world, okay? Friends, as a gospel-preaching church, we are often discussing the matter of how much God has loved us, right? How much God has loved us. But let us not overlook this beautiful mystery of how long God has loved us, how long God has has loved us. He knew us intimately and determined for us to belong to him in Christ before time even began. That is, before God even said, let there be light, he said, I love David. Amen. I love 
faith. I love Ben. I love Chad, right? God said these things before he even said, let there be light. Guys, this reality should absolutely decimate any doubt that God is working everything out for our good. He has been at it for thousands of years at least. The God who spoke unsearchable galaxies into being has known and loved you before anyone even conceived of the you that you are. This is the first piece of the doctrine of predestination, and it's just, this is not even a word, mind-bogglingly comforting, okay? That you and me and everyone who is in Christ has been on the heart and mind of God since forever. So whatever you might be facing, don't you dare believe the lie that God has forgotten about you. Don't believe that lie. That's impossible. He has known you and he has loved you since before the foundation of the world. And he's not even close to done yet. (laughs) All right, let's move on in our text. Let's jump ahead to verse 30. We'll go back in a minute. It says, and those whom he predestined, he also called And those whom he called, he also justified. The doctrine of predestination is this beautiful mystery of how God lovingly chose his people before the foundation of the world. And yes, it gets better. He also chose us by grace alone, apart from merit. Okay, By grace alone, apart from merit. Paul's letter to the Ephesian church proves to be very helpful in the interpretation of these verses in Romans 8. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. I put... Verse 8 in your notes, uh, but I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. It says, And you were dead in the, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God... Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Here's verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, as beautiful as this is, this is actually the part that some people struggle with when it comes to predestination. I think that much of the struggle comes from the attempt to grasp the secret things of God and his sovereign grace. Here's what these verses in Ephesians 2 lead us to understand. When God foreknew us, that is, when God lovingly chose us way back in eternity past and predestined us to be called and justified in Christ, he did not use his knowledge of our faith as the metric for why he chose us. You following that? God did not use his knowledge of our faith as the metric for why he chose us. Do you see this in Ephesians 2? Our justification has nothing to do with our merit because we have no merit, right? We were spiritually dead. And so Ephesians 2 says, even the faith that was necessary for us to receive God's grace was itself a gift of grace, right? We didn't manufacture faith. God infuses faith into our dead hearts by his Holy Spirit, and he makes us alive, okay? And for those who have a hard time understanding this, I'll just say 
Duh. <laughs> Duh. Of course we have a hard time understanding it. The mind of God is unsearchable. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. <clears throat> Maybe this will surprise you, but it shouldn't. God understands things that you and I have zero capacity to understand. And he has zero responsibility to explain himself to us. <clears throat> how, can, how can God intimately foreknow us and choose us without choosing us based on anything about us? I don't know. I don't know. But that's what he says he does. And our not understanding it is not evidence that it doesn't make sense. It's just proof that God works in ways that are mysteriously beautiful. Maybe we'll get clarity one day when Christ returns. But until then, we've been told that God's predestining love for us was based completely on his grace, and it has nothing to do with our merit. Okay? Now, some people will say, but wait. It says he foreknew us. So that must mean he foreknew that we would have faith, and so that's how he chose us, right? But you see, that's not what the text says. The text says he foreknew us, not he foreknew something special about us, okay? Let me use a movie analogy. God's predestining of us is not like the plot of Back to the Future 2. Okay, anybody love Back to the Future? I love Back to the Future. God's predestining of us is not like the plot of Back to the Future 2 where Biff goes into the future and gets the 2015 sports almanac and then goes back in time in order to become rich on his perfect sports predictions. Okay? God did not peek down the corridors of history, so to speak, in order to see what decision each of us would make regarding him and then base his choosing of us on our choosing of him, okay? Some people would say that, okay? That would be saying that our salvation was accomplished by us, and that would be anti-gospel, right? Ephesians 2 says explicitly, he justified us, not based on our works, but on his grace alone. Okay. So God's choosing of us was not like the plot of Back to the Future 2. It was more like the plot of Cool Runnings. Okay. Because our predisposition to Christ-likeness is like the impossibility of a Jamaican bobsled team. Okay? It's unbelievable. <laughs> we never would have chosen God on our own, but he chose us. And the accomplishment of our salvation is going to be like not only a Jamaican bobsled team, but like a Jamaican bobsled team winning a gold medal at the Olympics. It sounds too good to be true. That's what our salvation is like. Can I get a Yaman? Okay. All right. Oh, you guys are awake. Okay, good. Oh, I feel so much better. Okay, so, so the doctrine of predestination is this beautiful mystery of how God lovingly chose his people before the foundation of the world by grace alone apart from merit. And finally, number three, for conformity to Christ. Okay. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This is the ultimate why of the gospel. When Romans 8.28 says that God works all things together for our good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose... This is the good, and this is the purpose, that we would all be conformed into the image of Christ. You see, because the New Testament writers sometimes refer to Jesus 
as the second Adam. Do you know that? And what they mean by that is that where Adam failed to be a perfect representation of what it looks like to love and obey and glorify God, Jesus did not fail. Jesus did not fail. He modeled it perfectly for us so that by his spirit, we might follow in his footsteps and become progressively more like him with each day. Okay? And again, we see that Ephesians confirms this ultimate goal of God for us. In Ephesians 4, it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. This is what God's redemptive plan has been about from the very beginning. God has always desired to make a people for himself. And there are a lot, of, a lot of descriptive terms we could use for the kind of people that God is making, but Romans 8 makes it clear. The kind of people that God desires to create and is creating in his church is a family. Amen. A family modeled after Christ. Because God desires, we see in our text, God desires to have many sons and daughters who love him and who are like him. Amen. Okay, And frankly, as a dad with four kids, I get it. Okay, I get it. Having kids and having a family is awesome. And it's fun. As my kids start to get older and more mature, it's so crazy to see how they become like me and like Amy, their personalities, how they're learning to make jokes that we all laugh at together and ask important questions about life and about who God is. And I can only imagine what this will be like when my kids are grown and the joy of having them come home on, on holidays, you know, as we sit around the dinner table talking and laughing and just enjoying one another's company. I can't wait for that. Because this is a picture. This is a picture. It's a foretaste of eternity. This is what heaven will be like, except better than we can imagine. Jesus will be the firstborn older brother in the family of God with many sons and daughters who love him and who love one another and who enjoy and worship God forever. If this sounds good to you, <laughs> good. Because Paul says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those who he justified, he also glorified. He also glorified. Amen. Now, we might have expected Paul to say, those whom he justifies, he will also glorify. Amen. But he speaks of our eternal state of glorification in the past tense. Do you notice that? Glorified as if it has already happened because that is how sure the predestined, beautiful, mysterious plan of God, the gracious plan of God is. That's how sure it is. It's a sure thing. If you've been justified, you will be glorified. Amen. You will be glorified because God is going to accomplish his plan. Okay. So that's my best shot at the definition of predestination. You can tell me how I did. It's, it's the beautiful mystery of how God lovingly chose his people before the foundation of the world by grace alone apart from merit for conformity to Christ. And so now as we close, I want to just briefly hit on what this doctrine should do in us in a practical sense, because a doctrine that amazing should not do nothing, okay? Shouldn't do nothing. God has 
revealed it to us, not so that we would argue about it, as some do, unfortunately, but so that we might be changed by it, okay? So the doctrine of predestination should breed in Christians a sense of humility, security, and persistency. Let's talk about each one of those, and then we'll wrap up. First of all, the doctrine of predestination should breed in us a sense of humility. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends his disciples out for the first time to begin preaching the gospel in order to give them credibility that they would need, okay? He also gives them a unique disposition of the Spirit to perform miracles, to heal the sick and to cast out demons and so forth in order to show people that Jesus is the real deal, okay? And that that this is what his kingdom would be like, okay? That's why Jesus gives these special powers by the Spirit, okay? And so uh, they go out, the disciples go out, and when they come back, they're really excited because they did what Jesus told them to do, and it worked, okay? So they're stoked about that. Listen to what Jesus says to them in their excitement, Luke 10, verse 17. It says, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, Even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Here's what he's saying. Regardless of what you may do for God, your joy should always flow out of what God has done for you. Okay, Jesus reminds them what God had done for them. He had written their names in the book of life. That is, he had loved them from before the foundations of the world. He had called them and he had justified them. Jesus tells his disciples to work to keep their joy rooted in God's predestining love because it keeps us humble. It keeps us humble. If we start, some of us have done this, it's, it's, it can happen, okay? If we start finding our joy in what we're doing, then we grow prideful, right? And there is absolutely no room for pride in Romans 8 faith. Is there? The Holy Spirit does it all. (laughs) We've seen that through Romans 8. The Holy Spirit does it all. What in the world do we have to be prideful about? Not a thing. To quote the Puritan Jonathan Edwards, we bring nothing to our own salvation except the sin which made it necessary. Okay. So this is the first thing that the doctrine of predestination should do in us. It should breed humility. No matter how long we've been a Christian... No matter what good works the Lord may have accomplished through us, we know it's not us who's done any of it. It's been him all along. That breeds lifelong humility, right? The humility of sinners who have become sons by the grace of God alone. The second thing that the doctrine of predestination should breed in us is a sense of security. In John 15, 16, Jesus makes a really clear statement that I think lends itself to this. In John 15, he says to his disciples, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So not only does this reality breed humility, it should also bring us great security in our faith. The fact that none of us is here primarily by our own initiative. Okay? Sure, that's humbling. It's supposed to be. But man, is that strengthening. The finishing of our faith is not primarily in our own hands. It's in Jesus' hands. Hebrews says that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Paul says in Philippians 1 that the work of Christ began in, that he began in us. He's going to complete in us when he returns, okay? So if anyone feels like their faith is feeble and weak today, join the club. I'm in the club. We're all weak. 
but do not lose heart because Jesus is mighty to save. He is the one who chose you, and he's the one who's going to get your faith to the finish line, okay? After all, he's, he's been working on this plan for too long. He's loved you for too long to give up on you now. You're four-fifths of the way through the plan, the way I see it. He foreknew you, he predestined you, he called you, and he justified you. All that's left now is to glorify you. And he's going to do it. So you are secure. If your faith is in Jesus, you are eternally safe. So the doctrine of predestination should breed in us humility, security, and last but not least, it should breed in us a sense of persistency. When I say persistency, I mean persistency in the mission, the great commission, our mandate to go and to make disciples, to share the message of the gospel, to join Jesus in his plan to seek and save the lost. You see, some people will say, okay, some people say, well, if it's all predetermined, why do we even need to evangelize, right? The answer is because one word that we haven't hit on very heavily yet in our text, it's the word called, called, Before any of us started to pick up on God's plan to justify us in Christ, something happened. We were called to believe the gospel, right? If you're sitting in here today as a Christian, justified by the blood of Christ, shed for you on the cross, then somewhere in the story of your life, someone in obedience to Christ called you to faith. Somebody called you to faith, a preacher, a friend, a co-worker, a parent. Someone stepped out in faith and called you to trust in Christ, right? But here's the thing. In the call of that external person who shared the gospel with you, you didn't just hear their call. You heard the internal call of God, right? When whoever it was in your life who called you to faith in Christ Whenever they were talking to you, you realized that someone else was speaking to you simultaneously, the Holy Spirit. That's why we responded, right? And this is why the doctrine of predestination should breed a persistency in us for the Great Commission. Because in God's predestining love, he has sovereignly determined to use his people to take his gospel call to his people who he has foreknown and who he intends to justify, who have not yet believed, okay? In Acts chapter 18, Paul is in Corinth, and he's probably nervous because there hasn't been a good reception to the gospel there. But Jesus comes to him and speaks to him. Listen to what this says in Acts 18. It says, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, he said, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you And no one will attack you to harm you. For, get this, for I have many in this city who are my people. Church, the doctrine of predestination should not deter us from evangelism. It should spur us on in our evangelism. God has more people in this city and around the world who are his people. They just don't know it yet. They just don't know it yet. Because it's on us to go and tell them about Jesus and to call them to faith. God has predetermined to use his predestined people to go and find the rest of his predestined people. Later in chapter 10 of Romans, Paul says it this way. He says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Paul is implying here that we should be persistent in our gospel witness. There are more people out there whom God has loved before the foundation of the world, and he has tasked us with telling them. Because that's how he calls them. That's how he calls them. 
the doctrine of predestination should breed in Christians a sense of humility, security, and persistency. But as we close, maybe you're, um, maybe you're getting the sense today. Maybe you haven't before, but maybe you're getting the sense today that God is calling you. As you hear all these things about God's love for his people from before the foundation of the world, who he chooses by his grace to conform to the image of Christ, maybe you're getting the feeling that you need to respond. If that's the case, I would just encourage you to do that today. Because that's not me making you feel that way. I'm not that good of a preacher. The internal call of God to faith in Christ is way above my pay grade. Okay, That's the Holy Spirit who does that. And so as I've said numerous times in this series through Romans 8, if you have the inclination to come to Jesus today, just come. Just come. What are you waiting for? Run to him. There is nothing, if you want to come to Jesus today, there is nothing that you need to do first. No hurdles to jump over, no papers to sign, no sins that you need to gain mastery over first. When Jesus calls us to himself, he just tells us to come. To come and to drink freely of the water of life and bring our burdens and our struggles with us. He'll deal with those. <laughs> He'll deal with those. Our, our need for God's grace is actually what qualifies us to receive it. So there is nothing that you need to do before you come to Jesus today. Bringing your sin and exchanging it for the gift of the Holy Spirit. So if you feel prompted to come, then you should come. Don't wait for another Sunday. God's plan has been to save you since forever. <laughs> That's what our text tells us. So why not just go ahead and get on board with God's plan for your life today? What are you waiting for? All of us here on Team Jesus would love to have another brother or sister in Christ, wouldn't we? All right, let's pray. God, you're so good. This has been a challenging Sunday for me, I confess. It's hard to talk about finances and it's not easy to talk about a doctrine like predestination. It's, it's mind-boggling. It's controversial to some, but Father, it is so good. And so I just pray now that in my weak, feeble attempt to explain this incredible doctrine, God, that you would do what I can't do, that your Holy Spirit would work in the hearts of the men and women here, whether, whether they just need to believe it today, whether they're Christians already, they just need to believe this doctrine, trust this doctrine, be comforted by this doctrine. I pray that they would do that. And God, if there are some in this room who have never trusted Christ for salvation, I pray that they would just be overwhelmed this morning Amen. by the sense of how much you love them, but God, how long you have loved them. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.